Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, We're looking these last number of Sabbath evenings at this little phrase, but God, uh, or but the Lord, or but you, or but he, whatever way it appears in our Bibles. And it often acts as a hinge, as a turning point. Before it, there is some description of catastrophe. And after it, there's going to be a change. And this, this moment, but God, changes everything. We've seen it uh, in the life of Noah. The flood comes. There's desolation, destruction, and death. And Noah and his family are alone on the waters. But God remembered Noah. We've seen it in the life of Joseph. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. Jonah, uh, in the belly of the whale, we haven't looked at this verse, but he says, but you have brought me up from the pit. Psalm 73, my flesh and heart may faint and fail, but God is the strength of my heart. There's the change from, from weakness to strength. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We quoted this morning and read this morning Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God. And how is it that all these incredible reversals are possible? Well, at the heart of the Old Testament, there are verses, a series of verses that show how all the other but God verses or but the Lord verses, how they can be true. All the other verses that we've looked at go from darkness to light. This set of verses go from light to darkness. And because they go from light to dark, we go from dark to light. This is the great reversal. And just as those other but God verses, we've seen that there's something wonderfully personal about them. These but God verses, or but the Lord verses, there is something profoundly personal but not to us, but to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those other but God verses, we felt, as we've looked at them, a sense of surprise and wonderment. As we've seen over and over again, we know the verse in Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for good. That's like the, the great tree trunk. It's not a but God verse, but it's, it's, it's one that captures that reversal of how God takes everything and works it for good. But these other verses, these other but God verses, are like leaves on the tree of that great tree trunk of God's transforming sovereignty. And we see them here and there scattered all over the Bible that show us, well, maybe they're like, not like leaves on the tree, they're like fruit in the tree. That Romans 8, 28 is not a one-off description. It's a grand summary of all these other verses. Because that's who our God is. 
And we've looked at one in wonder at some of the ways that God says, I will transform this situation. And I want us to take that sense of wonderment and surprise and flip it on its head to capture the shock, the surprise of Christ as he moves from light to darkness. There are three such phrases in Isaiah 53. Each one is a step darker. We need to walk with great care, as you always must do in the dark, and as particularly when we're dealing with the cross, the crucifixion, the relationship between the Father and the Son, the suffering of Christ, we must walk carefully. And even using the phrases I've done in our headings, a surprise, a surprising sufferer or a surprised sufferer, it's not that this was new to Jesus, not that it was new to God the Son. He knew it was coming. It was not a surprise to his knowledge. But I think we're right in saying that his experience of it, the awfulness of it, seems in Scripture to to take his breath away, so to speak. And certainly, we want to see the surprise that this is as we look at it. Now, you'll note from uh, when I read from the NIV that it only has one of the verses translated, but uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 5, the... New American Standard Bible captures the three uh, phrases, and I've put its translation uh, on the notes. But he was pierced for our transgressions. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased, or but it was the Lord's will to crush him, putting him to grief. Uh, And it's entirely right to translate the verses that way. There is a a little Hebrew letter, as it happens at the start of those verses, that can be translated either and or but. Uh, And one commentator uh, says, particularly verse 10, uh, this verse opens with this Hebrew letter and expresses a great contrast. And so but is, is a good way to translate it. There's overlap between the three sets of verses as we'll see, but there's a progression deeper into the cause of the suffering of the servant of God. They really answer the question, why did Christ die? And verse 5, we could say the answer is, he died because he was pierced, because of nails. Verse 6 gives us a different answer to that question. Why did Christ die? Because sin. And verse 10 takes us even further. Why did Christ die? Because God did it. Nails did it. Sin did it. God did it. And they take us deeper into the the, the shock and anguish of the Son's experience. We move, as it were, from bodily pain to a spiritual pain to 
how can we put it? That deep, deep anguish of heart that causes him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the great reversal. And so first of all, we want to see a surprising sufferer. A surprising sufferer. Or a surprising substitution. Um, each but is, is a pivot, a hinge. On one side of it, we've got an explanation. Or sorry, a, a description. And then with the but God, or but He, or but the Lord, we have an explanation in verses 3 and 4. We're introduced to the servant a little bit more, and we're told that he's despised and rejected. He took up our pain, our suffering. He's been stricken, smitten, afflicted. All of this is sad enough, and it would fill us with pity and compassion. But verse 5 takes what we've read and adds to it a word of explanation. But he was pierced for our transgression. Here's the word of explanation. Here's why it's happening. Here's this element of substitution. We should have been the ones suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's the explanation. And Isaiah steps up the description in this verse. He says, he was pierced and he was crushed. One commentator, uh, an older German commentator, a man called Franz Delitzsch, says, there were no stronger expressions to be found in the language to denote a violent and painful death. And this is what we need to consider. Here's the surprising sufferer. Here's the one who's suffering. And it's not that he has done anything wrong. He is suffering in our place. Could, could, and here's what's to be considered. Could anything, in a sense, have prepared him for this? We see in that word, pierced for our transgressions and it draws to our mind immediately the the nails that pierced his wrists and feet. It conjures up in our minds the physical pain. But as we read on, we find that there's much more than physical pain to be borne in mind. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Now let's step back from the darkness a moment And consider the light that we read of in John 17. In verse 5 we read, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world began. And then at the end of John, he says the same sort of thing. as He he wants his people to see the glory that, that he had enjoyed with the Father before the creation of the world. That unbroken intimacy. John describes it in John 1.18 as, as from the Father's bosom. Somebody that was close in 
to the Father's side, a place of affection and delight, unbroken joy, untarnished beauty, a place of unparalleled honor where the angels and the cherubim and seraphim bow before him. A place of unimagined riches. That's the light. And the one who enjoyed all of that we're told, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and punished. Imagine the, as it were, the sense of shock and surprise that, that one who is from such glory and yes, he's come into this world and he's born in poverty and he lives among sinful people so it's not just the, the sheer rude awakening of plummeting from heaven to the cross. But oh, if we were to think that, oh well, it's not that, so it's not as bad as, the, as, as going from there to there. If we could imagine, if we could grasp what it was for him to be pierced and punished. Yes, he'd experienced pain in his life and suffering. But never pain to death. And never, ever punishment that was being poured out like this punishment. Imagine the, 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 the sense of surprise. And we get a glimpse of it in the garden of Gethsemane. As he sweats great drops of blood and as he goes away and he, he prays over and over and Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me, yet not your will, sorry, not yet, Yet not my will, but yours be done. Pierced and crushed. It's unmistakably bloody, isn't it? One writer says this, he says, If the history of redemption is a story told in pictures, the blood of Christ is the paint with which the story is portrayed. The giver of life is experiencing death. He's experiencing a death of punishment. And we'll, we'll, this is where there's overlap. We'll come to that more in a moment. And what makes it worse is that it's punishment for our sins. And as God the Son, He knows the level of judgment and He knows the fury of a holy God at sin and he knows the exact measure of punishment that will be meted out. But what a shock to him it must have been to actually experience that punishment. And what's all the more surprising is that he does it voluntarily. It should have been you and it should have been me but he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed. For my sin. Your sin.
surprising, surprising sufferer. It shouldn't have been him, it should have been me. But he was pierced. Secondly, a surprising sin bearer. Surprising sin bearer. Verse 6 takes us deeper into the unfolding mystery of our eternal happiness. Again, we've got that little bit of description. And then the but the Lord. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But this reveals something new. Not about the punishment, but the incredible truth that our sins were laid on him. Here is the surprising sin bearer. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at how the New American Standard Version translates it. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That captures it. Alec Mateer translates it this way. He says, Yahweh, or Jehovah, caused to meet on him the iniquity of us all. Then he says, Drama indeed. The death of the servant is the intersection point of all space and time, from north, south, east and west, from past, present and future. The divine hand gathers in the sins of all the sinners he proposes to save and personally conducts them to a solemn and holy spot, the head of his servant. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our grotesque sins in all their vile monstrosity. That same German writer, uh, quoting, well actually quoting somebody else, says, uh, Jehovah caused to strike or break upon him the iniquity of us all. Like waves smashing in and breaking upon a shore, the waves of our sin pounding in like a, a great tsunami of sewage sweeping over someone. Over and over again. Sometimes you, you hear of a surfer coming off their surfboard and the wave comes in and lands on top of them. Then the next wave comes in and the next one comes in and they just can't get up. Oh, how awful it must have been for Christ. The shock. Reeling already in Gethsemane at the prospect of bearing sin and judgment. You know, pain can be a good thing. Punishment can be a good thing. That's what we've talked about already. But sin, never, never. And let that hinge word move you from the light to the darkness. A holy Son of God engulfed in sin. Not his sin, but your sin and mine. I met a girl at the conference who, um, whose grandparents were camping in the vicinity of Mount St. Helens 
uh, whenever it erupted in 1980, and uh, she was putting some of their diary extracts on the on the on the web, and her grandfather writes. Um, they were they were believing they had loaded the car and were ready to leave for home. And Maggie said, "It's getting dark out." That's at eight thirty in the morning. It looked like big black clouds, and the sun disappeared. The rumbling started like thunder and continued getting louder and continuous. Then it sounded like hard rain. At first we thought maybe small hail, but lo and behold, it was volcano ash, very coarse and coming down thick. That is what blotted out the sun and made it pitch black outside. Imagine the terror for them. Stuck on this mountainside that's, that's erupting off over there and, and volcano ash is starting to rain down on them and their car. We can picture the terror, but imagine the awfulness of sin being placed on the sinless Son of God. Falling, falling on him, rising like a flood on the one whose eyes are too pure to behold evil. The one of whom the seraphim said, holy, holy, holy. The one who dwells in unapproachable light who's utterly sinless and he's drowning in the filth of my sin and your iniquity. Stuff we wouldn't want anybody else to know. He knows it. It's as if he's inhaling it, as if it's washing over him. Everywhere there's sin. Temptation must have been hard enough, as it were, rude enough awakening the great adversary hurling temptation at him like lightning bolts and him, as it were, holding on by faith to the word of God and sheltering behind that shield of God's word. But now breaking over him are the countless sins of all his people and there is no shield. And they are relentlessly heaped up by no enemy But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us sitting in Letterkenny on the 13th of August. Us. And many, many more people. To have such an awful load laid by such a hand the awfulness we must see the awfulness of our sin we tend to belittle our sins but here they are and here's what they do and consider the contrast from sinless to sin bearing not sinless to sinful we need to be careful but sinless (coughs) to bearing your sin and mine but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has an, an, an now an up-close personal acquaintance with sin that he never had before. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consider That contrast from light to bearing sin, from holiness to
to bearing your sin and mine. Surprise, surprising sin bearing. And then thirdly, a surprising source. We come to verse 10. And when we come to verse 10, oh, surely we're out of our depths. Surely this is just mystery. Why did Christ die? Well, because nails were driven into his hands, because he ran out of strength to lift himself up to breathe. That's part of the answer. Because of our sin, that's part of the answer. Peter, when he's speaking the day of Pentecost, speaks of the wickedness of men, uh, putting him to death as they conspired together. But Peter comes to what Isaiah sees here, that it was the Father's will. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter writes, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's will. Here's the explanation of verses 7 to 9. Verses 7 to 9, we've got a description. We've got a description of awful injustice by oppression and judgment. Well, he was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mind. Who did this to him? Who did this to such a, a, a lamb, an innocent sufferer? Who did it? We demand. But it was the Lord's will to crush him. And in fact, the, the word should be translated most probably as, and it can be translated either way, but more probably, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him. What a surprise. What a surprising source. What a surprising description. Well, we were told elsewhere in Scripture, the Lord does what pleases him. He only ever does what brings him delight. And yet in doing this, can we say it brought him delight? Well, we need to be careful. We are told in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We are told in Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. He is not a sadistic God. We need to be careful. This doesn't mean that the Father and Son are in opposition. For in verse 12 we find that the same God who has taken this pleasure is going to bring honor and glory to this Son. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He's going to honor the Son for his willingness to die. We must be careful. It doesn't mean that, as some often say, as if the, the Father is the angry one and the Son is the kind one. For we read in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It doesn't mean that for this moment on the cross that the Father stopped loving the Son as some writers sometimes speak of, as they speak of the, the Trinity being fractured and, and torn apart. No, 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 no. He didn't stop loving the Son if it were possible for him to love the Son more than he does. 
We would have to say that at that moment he loved the son more than ever. And yet at that moment, the son was never more unaware of his father's love because he was bearing our sin. He was standing in your shoes and mine and experiencing that fury, that holy hatred that we thought of this morning that belonged to you and I, belonged to us so that we could experience that undiminishable love that the Father has for the Son. Well, if it's not those things, what can we say? It's not pleasure in crushing his Son, full stop. But surely, it's the delight that he gets as he sees the purpose of, of his son bearing sin and bearing judgment and seeing his son bringing many sons and daughters to glory and seeing every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that his son, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the joy of seeing his son being glorified and honored. If we read of Christ in Hebrews, we're told who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He was looking to the joy set before him. Surely we can take the same thing here. It's the whole thing put together. Where this is going. The the saving of many lives. the, The joy of the Son in saving people. The glory that the Son, His beloved Son gets brings pleasure to the Father. And yet, and yet, oh, the exclusive pain that this reveals. Behind the anguish of verses 7 to 9 is the explanation of verse 10. But it was the Lord's will, the Lord's pleasure, to crush him and cause him to suffer. Behind it lies the hand of of his dear father. And what was asked of Abram or Abraham in Genesis 22, what he was asked to do. And then God intervenes and says, no, don't do it. Don't lay your hand on your son, your beloved son. This father does. So that the son could bear your iniquity and bear your punishment so that you could know the Son, so that you could be brought to know the Father, so that the Spirit could make you like the Son. The Father does this to his beloved Son for the glory of the Son, but who benefits? Oh, the Son, the Son gets the glory, yes, we worship him and we love him, but here we are, we get sucked up into this too. And we, we have salvation out of this verse because it pleased the Lord to bruise him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Spurgeon, let me move to a close with 
an illustration from Spurgeon as he tries to capture for us something of this moment. He says, picture this, a martyr in prison. The chains are on his wrists, and yet he sings. It has been announced to him that tomorrow is his burning day. He claps his hands right merrily and smiles while he says, It will be a sharp work tomorrow. I shall breakfast below in fiery tribulations, but afterwards I will sup with Christ. The time has come. The men with halberds precede him through the streets. Mark the serenity on the martyr's countenance. He turns to some who look upon him and he exclaims, I value these iron chains far more than if they had been of gold. It is a sweet thing to die for Christ. He, there are a few of the boldest saints gathered around the stake and as he unrobes himself and stands upon uh, the the, the coals to receive his doom he tells them that it is a joyous thing to be a soldier of Christ to be allowed to give his body to be burned and he shakes hands with them and bids them goodbye with merry cheer one would think that he was going to a wedding rather than to be burned he says he dies singing God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble then he says picture another scene There is the Saviour going to his cross. All weak with suffering, his soul is sick and sad within him. There is no divine composure there. So sad is his heart that he faints in the streets. The Son of God faints beneath a cross that many a criminal might have carried. They nail him to the tree. There is no song of praise. He is lifted up in the air and there he hangs preparatory to his death. You hear no shout of exultation. There is a stern compression of his face as if unutterable agony were tearing his heart. As if Gethsemane were being enacted all over again on the cross. As if his soul were saying, if it be possible, let this cross pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Hark, he speaks. Will he not sing sweeter songs than ever came from martyrs' lips? Ah, no. It is an awful wail of woe that can never be imitated. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why is this? Why doth the Savior suffer so? Why, beloved, Spurgeon says, it was because the Father bruised him. The sunshine of God's countenance that has cheered many a dying saint was withdrawn from Christ. The consciousness of acceptance with God, which has made many a holy man espouse the cross with joy, was not afforded to our Redeemer. Then he says this, Underneath the church are the everlasting arms, but underneath Christ there were no arms at all, but his Father's hand pressed heavily against him. The upper And lower millstones of divine wrath pressed and bruised him. And not one drop of joy or consolation was afforded to him. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. This, my brothers, was the climax of the Saviour's woe. That his father turned away from him and put him to grief. Incredible, isn't it? 
but the Lord. See how we move from light to dark. Oh, let me finish with three conclusions. One, three applications. One, how this should cause us to worship such a Savior. How this should cause us to worship such a Savior. Two, he stepped into our darkness so that we could live in the light. How can we walk in darkness anymore? And thirdly, how we must believe these promise statements or these supporting evidences of God's transforming power that begin but God. Each of those but God verses throughout Scripture that fill us with hope were purchased at this price. Are there not times that we say, ah, but that might be true for you. That might be true of somebody else. That verse might apply to them, that promise, that hope. But no, my circumstances are so different. They're, they're too hard for God. Oh, we dare not say such a thing because those promises of God working everything for good have been purchased by these verses here. What they describe. And we do great insult to our Savior to say, Ah, but what you purchased doesn't apply to me. So let's believe the great promises that our God makes to us. And let's live with thankfulness at our great Savior's work. Let's stand and pray. O Lord God, our minds cannot compute the profundity of what is described in these verses. But Lord, will you open our eyes and our hearts and our heads to continually take in a little bit more, to get two further handholds up the mountain of its immensity, to grasp what has been done for us so that we will delight in our Savior, your Son, all the more, so that long before that great day of his appearance, we will be bowing at his knee and saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord and we love him. I love the Lord. And more and more that we might grow in delight for him and that having been filled more and more with delight and appreciation for him, we would walk more and more in the light of life. That we would not walk in darkness. That we would not walk in despair, but that we would hang on to those promises that have been purchased for us at such a price. That we would hear God saying to us, But God, the Lord your God, has turned 
the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. That we would hear that and not say, ah, but. That we would hear you say, that was meant for harm, but I intended it for good. And we wouldn't say, ah, but to him. That we would hear these precious sentences from Isaiah. And that we would know that the promises have been purchased at far too high a price for us to dishonor them by our unbelief. Father, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.